Welcome, travelers. This is Josh. And I'm Leo Anika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventure. Welcome back, everybody. We are about to dive into our fourth episode on Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. I think that when we're done with this episode, we'll have actually gone through all of the material that's in the book. You know, Liwanika, I don't know about you, but some of my opinions about what I read in Tasha's on the first time around have changed just in our conversation or as I've read through it multiple times. Uh, but for today, anyway, we are going to dive heavily into the classes section of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Um, and Liwanika says he wants to go ahead and start with the rogue class and uh, go off for a little bit. Before I start on rogues, I do want to say I absolutely agree with you. The things that I've kind of read and now reread a couple times in my effort to be complete and to do a great job as, as a co-host has really led to some better understanding of the material that we're reading. And along with that understanding actually comes some minor changes in opinion. There's some things that I thought were meh that I'm now thinking a little bit better of. And among those things is the first rogue I'm going to talk about today. As anybody who's heard me over the last couple of weeks has heard me allude to, because I've been waiting for this for a long time, built up one with UA, been waiting for this class, been waiting for these types of abilities for a very long time. And that is the Psy Rogue or hashtag Soul Knight. So I thought that that was going to be the one that I was going to go on forever about. I would forget about all the other classes. It was the only one I was really going to really dig into. In fact, that was the plan. Our original show notes were actually all about that concept. And along the way to that particular stop on our journey, I came across a little thing known as the Phantom. This is a rogue that truly lives up to its name. It is the rogue that I have not seen highlighted on any podcast. Nobody has led any conversation or shown any pictures of this particular rogue. In fact, before I actually got the book and read this title, I didn't even know this was a class we were going to get. And yet, I may like it better than the Soul Knife. There are a couple things about classes that, that need to be understood. There are classes that are very mechanically strong, and there are classes that are very narratively strong. Like, they have a lot of flavor. The guys, Some of the guys that I listen to over on the Dungeon Cast, they are always talking about putting a little pepper, putting a little seasoning into your, into your classes and your subclasses, and uh, how tasty they are. And I'm here to tell you, quote the guys over at the Dungeon Cast, this class is tasty this subclass has got it this is a perfectly cooked excellently seared steak it is really good i'll, I'll certainly give you that i hey. remember reading through reading through the rogue uh class in tasha's and i flagged this page and i wrote one thing on it I, I'll, I'll show you the text i don't know if you can see it from there it says serial killer yeah yeah. That's all that says on it. Yeah. I mean, these guys are good. If yeah. you want to play Dexter in D&D. Yeah, absolutely. This is the one. Do this. This. Dexter. Do yep. this. Do yep. this. Investigator background, rogue phantom. You've got Dexter. You've done. And game set match, he's going to be a tough cat to catch. Let's go. Let's dig in. With the phantom, the real concept, the meat and potatoes behind this one is you're playing a character who collects souls. And the souls of the defeated. The beauty of this is it doesn't have to be an evil character. It does have to be a character that has a certain disconnect with common <laughs> customs and convention. But it doesn't have to be evil. It's like you're um, a good necromancer. This disconnect could be sketchy depending on the flavor of your campaign world. I can see campaign world where no matter what the character actually is, everybody will look at him as a villain. I can see others where it may not even be noticed. 
there is a lot of talk about the fact that Shatter Kai are perfect for this. There's a lot of talk about the fact that um, these were wonderful in Shadowfell or Shadowfell-centric episodes. I can picture Drow like living and breathing this class. Um, it's, it's an amazing class. It's just that good. So basically what you're going to do is take out people, you use their souls for your own benefit, and you're not going to feel sorry about it. At third level, you get uh, the ability Whispers of the Dead. That means basically you get temporary skills from the people that die around you. Whoever you kill, you get something from them that you get to do for a period of time that follows. That's flavor. Skills are hard to come by in 5e. Rogues tend to have a lot of them. Now you have a rogue who has an extra one. And that extra one can change depending on who they're around. And, and why they're around. I, there's a lot of ways that can be used. Whales from the grave. Extra damage for your, for your uh, sneak attack to a second target. So essentially this is, you do sneak attack. All the different ways rogues get to do sneak attack, no different than any other rogue. However, as long as there's another target within 30 feet, you now get to add necrotic damage to that second target. And you can do that a number of times based on your proficiency bonus. At, off the rip, you're already at doing that three times per long rest. That's just sick. That's, that's nasty. Yeah. That's, that's great damage. Yeah. Especially when you factor in the fact that necrotic damage cannot be easily healed. And you add to the fact that it's a type of damage that is not at third level easily resisted. This is a huge, huge ability. Yeah. Doing necrotic damage at third level is, that's a game changer. It really is. That's because you, you talk about like the different types of damage that can be done, especially from magic and from spells and everything like that. Necrotic damage is one of those that you see later in game because the types of creatures that have it tend to be your higher CR creatures. And so getting the ability to do necrotic damage at third level, especially from a creature that can learn the spell learn the abilities of a creature that it just kills that's a that's a really powerful combination and 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 let's let's bear out the math you're a rogue assuming you're sneak attacking with your best weapon let's say a rapier because come on uh, everybody we all know you're a rogue you're using a rapier unless your dm is homebrewing other weapons to be nice finesse weapons you want the highest damage finesse weapon you can get it's a rapier so if you come in with a rapier that you're doing a da damage to your primary target it's on a sneak attack. You're adding 2d6 to that. That's a lot of damage at third level. That is potentially, uh, I just ended somebody at third level, especially if you crit. Now, you turn around and say half of that sneak attack damage, so you get a die six to a different target. You're in a combat with a party. Let's say you're a party of four. Your fighter's fighting a guy that's probably the beefiest enemy on there. And now you take out your target, enemy wizard, but drop a D6 on the target that the fighter's doing because they're within 30 feet of you, you've now not only thrown out more damage than most people in your party are doing in a single round, but you are also affecting the battlefield in a positive way. You're not only helping your individual combat, you're benefiting the party. Dead stop right there. That alone is what caught my eye about this class. I didn't have to go beyond the third level abilities to recognize this class is awesome. But then I did. Tokens of the Departed. In one of the most flavorful, really cool abilities that I've seen or features that I've seen, anybody that dies within that area of you, you create a token. You can use that token to get advantages on death saving throws or constitution saving throws. Who doesn't need extras of those when the time is necessary? That's awesome. You can destroy one of those trinkets. Oh, oh by the way, that advantage is as long as it's on your person doesn't even utilize the resource it's as long as it's on your person you destroy one of those trinkets and you get to use the whales from the grave instead of using one of your number amount of time so let's say you have at ninth level you would have four whales from the grave available to you you could destroy a trinket instead of one of the four regular uses of that ability and then you could also, and this is where a lot of the flavor comes in, destroy one of those trinkets and the spirit contained with it has to respond to one question you ask of it. Now, DMs need to be aware that they have to be prepared for this. If you've got somebody playing a phantom and they get the ninth level, they're going 
to use this. They're going to gain tokens and they're going to start asking those tokens questions. They're going to take out a guard and try to get information about the watch schedule or who the Lord is or who actually murdered so-and-so or where they can find the secret of NIM or whatever the case may be. They're constantly going to get into these discussions. So DMs be aware, but understand it's very cool. And you have the ability to really add in a lot of good stuff to your game. Now, I'm going to go real quick through the last ones because, quite honestly, a lot of games don't get on to 13th level or 17th level. But if you're in a game that does, these are pretty cool. Ghost Walk. You have an astral form, a spectral form. It allows you to have a flying speed of 10 feet, and you can hover. It's not very fast. It's not very far, but it's freaking cool. And, like, so that's something that works for you. By the way, while you're in that spectral form, attack rolls have disadvantage against you. You're at 13th level, and you're a rogue. You're hard to hit. Add disadvantage to that. Yep. Can't go wrong with that ability. Finally, the capstone ability for the Phantom, Death's Friend. Add your necrotic damage to both your first and second foe, and it's full damage. So now all those things we talked about earlier, you actually get to do to both of them. Your targets are taking a lot of extra damage. At 17th level, you're throwing down 10d6 sneak attack damage. That means and you... it's on necrotic. No, better than that. This is the way this works. Same rogue, same rapier. Let's say it's not even magic. They get the sneak attack. They do the d8. They drop 10d6 in sneak attack damage. Now they drop 10d6 in necrotic damage on top of that damage. Oh. To target one. Target two. Somebody they haven't even fought with. They just have to be within 30 feet. Just took 60, 10 necrotic <laughs> damage also. Yeah. This is such a fabulous class. It that really might is. be, yeah. that to me is on par with a 17th level paladin catching wings and wrecking house. Well, so that's exactly it. You know, you, that is the perfect lead in Leonica because exactly what I was going to say is that you look at this class and you talk about how strong from a narrative point of view it is. This is the counter subclass to the new order of watchers subclass for the paladins. If you are playing a phantom rogue, you get a built-in bad guy NPC or or you know a, like another gray character because let's be honest, the phantom rogue is going to be a gray character. He's he cannot be purely good just based on the uh, just based on the things that he needs to do to power his abilities. He may and, be he may be a milk and cookies kind of guy. But he's going to throw in a little chocolate syrup in that milk. <laughs> <laughs> and this character is exactly what an Order of Watchers Paladin should be looking out for. Is somebody with extra planar abilities who is murdering people and taking their power. Order of Watchers may not be able to prove that this guy is dealing with extra planar abilities. But I don't think an, or an Order of Watchers Paladin is going to give two <laughs> about the fact he can't prove it. I do That's like the fact that narratively they're building character subclasses that easily play off each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's go back with our Dexter concept, right? Where you're playing the the uh, the phantom rogue who has to hide the fact that he's a phantom from the Order of Watchers Paladin that's in his party. So it's not just that you've got these two subclasses now that are somewhat oppositional, but also this phantom subclass has shadows in one of the druid subclasses um, that I had flagged that is doing exactly the same thing, right? He is dealing in, for lack of a better term, necrotic power sources to power what he's doing. And so now you've got the possibility. Like you, you talked about a, 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 an adventure that takes place in Shadowfell. You now can build an entire necrotic-based party there's a lot of wrong in that party. <laughs> I have shades of so many different things I want to do. I love looking at a class and saying, this would be a fun class to DM for. I, as a DM, know the kinds of targets are going to be out there, the kinds of information people have. So when this guy says, I'm asking a question of the dead, I've got good conversations in my head. I am probably weeks to months away from running a character playing a class like this. But I see it coming, and I'm ready for it, and I love it. That's what I'm looking for, and I think they did this masterfully well with the Phantom class. Did you ever see the movie The Order with Heath Ledger and Aja Argento? I not only saw it, I bought it as soon as it came out on DVD. It is still placed prominently on my DVD wall, 
and I actually watch it probably once, if not twice a year. Awesome. That's this character, that ability to speak with dead. Uh, if, if, okay, so if any of our listeners have not seen this movie, it's called The Order. It's got Heath Ledger, it's got Aja Argento. He plays an yeah. exorcist um, who st- stumbles upon this cabal of dead speaking, soul eating priests in the Vatican. I'm not sure that I would call it a good movie, but I love it. <laughs> I'll go a step further. I will call it a great movie. Uh, I love every element about this movie where you have this organization which has public tenants and has this darker side. And then you have people within the organization who become aware of that darker side but still believe in the in the sanctity of the organization. Yep. So now here they are working from the inside to end this threat against these things. And I see that correlation. I see that as working really, really well. I think any kind of adventure or campaign where you're dealing with a knightly order, a priestly order, a arcane society, a happy-go-lucky town, but yet there's something off about the baker. And the city watch, they watch a little too much. I think anytime you have those situations, you've got a game that's perfect for this type of character to navigate, where being gray doesn't necessarily make you an outlier, but it allows you to navigate the story. And I think as long as DMs are out there creating those types of adventures, those types of campaign worlds, this type of character will have a home where it can flourish. This is a solid damage dealing. It's a solid solid mechanical character that you're not going to be disappointed with what it's able to do. I, it, it's a superior subclass. Um, uh, Josh, you wanted to highlight a couple before I get on to our, uh, the one that I wanted to get to to start with. Why don't you talk about one of the ones that you were looking at? Yeah, sure. So I wanted to talk a lot about the magic users in this book um, because I think that their subclasses, just like the rogue subclasses, the subclasses specifically in the sorcerer class are just amazing. You know, looking through the short the, the, the show notes here, uh, the comment that I wrote about the sorcerer subclasses is that they are sexy AF. And there are two in particular that I really loved. First one was the Clockwork Soul. Now, this is a subclass of a type that we don't see a lot in Dungeons and Dragons, but it is it, it very much goes with the new Artificer class, where it is that steampunk-inspired class, where it is it's the kind of things that you would only see before in the Tinker Gnome class, where you know you've got this kind of mechanized feel to it. You see them in the Warforged, you see them in the Artificer, and now Sorcerers have a subclass, the Clockwork Soul. And again, you talk about a subclass that is just full of narrative power as opposed to only kind of statistical benefit to taking, and it's all over this guy. Like other Sorcerer subclasses, you get a variety of spells at the beginning. When you first take the Clockwork Soul subclass, your first ability is that when a creature you can see within 60 feet of you is about to roll a d20 with advantage or disadvantage, you can use your reaction to prevent the roll from being affected. You talk about your phantom rogue, who all of a sudden is is causing people to go ahead and to either have to fi- fire with advantage or have to fire with disadvantage, right? As a clockwork soul, at your first level, you can negate that as a reaction. That's his first ability. That, now that's any reroll or just a, or just stopping advantage? When a creature you can see within 60 feet of you is about to roll a d20 with advantage or disadvantage, you can use a reaction to prevent the roll from being affected by advantage and disadvantage. Damn! Yeah. So it's bound by your proficiency bonus, and that's how they begin. You eventually get into things like the, the 14th level uh, ability, Trans of Order. It's almost like a, like, a, like a state that the sorcerer enters, but for the duration, attack rolls against can't benefit from advantage. Whenever you make an attack roll from that state, an ability check or a saving throw, you can treat a roll of nine or lower on the d20 as a 10. So it's just, it's automatically preventing catastrophic failures. Um, as you go up in you, levels, you're going to have a better ability to really be much more successful at it. Exactly, right, yeah, you know. Um, you know, the ability to summon spirits. They can restore up to 100 hit points. It's your, it's your 18th level uh, class skill. The spirits can restore up to 100 points, divided as you choose by any number of creatures of your choice within a 30-foot cube. So your entire party 
if you know if you need you know like we t- we talked about a last time about how a lot of the feats that were offered give not just um kind of like hey i'm going to heal you of all your hit points but it's more like nope you need some hit points because we're moving on from uh, from encounter number one to encounter number two and we don't want to take a full rest in between so now you can go ahead and take 100 hit points and spread them between as many creatures as you as you can fit within a 30 foot cube having a pool of points to spread amongst the party will do a great deal to get everybody in fighting shape especially in situations where there is not rest. I know I am running a party right now that is in the middle of a pretty large dungeon crawl. They've gotten through two levels. They are bummed that they can't get a short rest right now because the attacks just keep coming when they slow down. That is by design, they're in a grind. (laughs) Uh, So that's the kind of thing that will help. Yeah. The other two abilities that the Clockwork Cavalcade uh, comes with. Um, So it's not only the 100 point pool that you can spread throughout your party, any damaged objects within that 30-foot cube are repaired fully, and every spell, 6th level or lower, that's on anybody within that cube ends. So if you have anybody that's affected by any spells, they're done. 6th level or lower. And 6th level spells, you know, sure, all the powerful spells are over 6th level, but there's a bunch that's under 6th level that, you know, you want to talk about, we were talking about necrotic damage earlier with the, with the Phantom Road. There's a lot of spells under 6th that do lingering necrotic damage. Along those lines, it should not be discounted, and, and this is an important thing. Again, the, ben- the mechanical benefit of some things are very dependent on the flavor and style of the DM in their campaign world. If you've gotten a, a, an effect that fixes and repairs all technical things. We're talking about carts, sleds, backpacks, boots, crossbows, arrows, those types of armor, all these types of things. So for all of our friends that have been playing Ghosts of Saltmarsh, who have things that have rusted or been in various uh, states of disrepair, fix. For those of our friends who are playing Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, or playing any game in which, or Tomb of Annihilation, or any game in which resource management becomes key. And it's something I don't necessarily recommend for every single adventure, but certainly if you're playing those tier one campaigns, or as things go into the early tier two, the fact that your 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 bit and bridle got damaged by an enemy becomes important. The fact that your boat is damaged or your dog sled is damaged or something like that becomes important. If you're a group of heroes looking to really help a town or get the town to give you some information, go to the farmer and fix his plow. You've made a friend for life. When you go into a town and you are feeding a group of people or allow them to feed themselves, you got them. Not just that, but let's look at the specific ability. You go into the town, you not only fix the farmer's plow, but you also heal his sick cow. So now you're talking about really building benefit to the average, ordinary, non-hero NPCs that exist in the world that are really the sources of information, you know, that are quite likely to go ahead and shut their mouth when they see the big bad guy walk by unless, until you can befriend them better. It's, it's like in the video game mechanic when you, know, you have individual player to NPC relationship type mechanics, right? Yep. Those NPCs are not going to give you information until your relationship with them is stronger than the relationship that they got with the guy that's, whose secrets they're, they're, they're keeping. And you know, what a and, great way to build, to, for, to introduce a sidekick for the party. Absolutely. And if you don't know whether your party is the type of party that would benefit from that type of power or not, especially or at high level, the ability to change your subclass now with a basically a total rewrite of I'm taking out this subclass and I'm adding in a new subclass means that you could decide at seventh level that your sorcerer becomes a clockwork guy because you are all of a sudden realizing that there's a lot of need for for lack of a better term, a mechanic in your party. Now, you and I both read The Soul Knife. It is a great stinking class, and I think that it, it raises some questions. So, yeah. So, why don't, let, why don't we dive in? Yeah. So, let's jump in. First of all, uh, I want to call out because I pro- Josh and I promised in the earlier episodes that we would start mentioning some of Tasha's great statements throughout. So, I wanted to make sure that uh, we did that, and I wanted to start with this one because it means that much to me. So I'm quoting from uh, Tasha here. I also 
have the ability to manifest my thoughts in ways that cut people. I call this power words. <laughs> I, you know, I should say it again. I love the character of Tasha in this book. Oh, yeah, goodness. she's wonderful. So at third level, uh, the first thing that a soul knife is going to get is the psionic power. Uh, and this includes the psionic energy die. This is the main mechanic that really fuels this particular subclass. That die is a D6, and you get a number of these D6s equal to two times your proficiency bonus. Keep that in mind as we talk about the different things that can be done with, with this particular mechanic, the side die. You regain your side die on long rest. It increases from a D6 to a D8 at level 5, a D8 to a D10 at level 11, and a D10 to a D12 at level 17. So this gets more powerful as we go. Now let's dig into what you can do with this power, this power source. First of all, you get the side bolstered nap. And this, on top of a standard rogue package, is fantastic. You're basically building a character that, because of their psionic power, will almost never fail a single skill check for anything they do, whether they are skilled in it, expertise in it, or not. If you take a skill check and you fail, so you get to roll the die, know that you failed, you can then roll your side die and add that die to your roll. So I'm going to roll my d20. If I miss, I don't necessarily know what the DC is, but on this particular skill, I'll probably have an idea of how difficult it is. I'll certainly know what I rolled and whether or not the likelihood of a d6 helping me is going to be there. So I have a bonus. By the time I get to fifth level, it's now D8. By the time I get to 11th, it's a D10. I'm adding so much to these things, it is not even... Which, so two things about that. For one, at 17th level, it's a D12, and your proficiency bonus is six, which means you get 12 of them. Yes. One. Thing yeah. two, it is a totally risk-free option if you fail that skill check, because you don't lose the die from your available Psy pool if unless you succeed. So let's say you make a skill check, you roll your D20, you're, you're, you're off by five, roll your side die. Because if you get a five or a six, you, now you succeed. You get a four or a three, whatever, doesn't matter. Just goes back into your side pool. Like that's, yeah. the fact it doesn't expend is stupid. Yeah. I'm, I mean, stupid as a compliment. Again, like those yeah. of you that didn't listen to the last episode, I'm from Boston. Stupid, wicked, they're compliments. And along with that, let's just talk about what a rogue actually does to begin with. This is a class that has a ton of skills to begin with. I believe if I'm not off, they get four to start with. It might even be six. I'm not even sure. Uh, four. They get four skills. They get, they get four get, skills get, to start four proficiencies. Yeah. At level one, they then get two, two skills at expertise. At expertise, exactly. Yep. So potentially you've got things you're just not going to fail at. Depending on how you position your numbers and the skills you select, there's not much you're going to miss at, and then you can add this on top of that. Yeah. By the time you get to the third level and you start adding your proficiency bonuses and all that, and at some point you get more expertise added on there, oh, my God, you throw in a feed or two, and you're off to the races. By the time you're level 10, when you start getting some higher-level rogue class features, the likelihood of missing a skill check are almost non-existent. You mean like the skill expert feat that we talked about last time that allows you to go ahead and get additional proficiencies? Yeah. Yes, that one. Or if you're playing a variant human or a half-elf and you take Prodigy, oh, which throws you like three other skills, another tool, and another expertise, that you can't mess with this. Psychic Whispers. You can establish telepathic communication between yourself and others. This is sending or receiving for a distance of up to a mile. Now let's check out the deeper dive on this. As an action, you choose one or more creatures you can see up to a number of creatures equal to your proficiency bonus. At third level, that's going to be two. So you and two other people can now communicate telepathically up to a mile apart. It lasts for a number of hours equal to the number rolled on the side die. You're rolling a D6. That's an hour. That's two hours. Clearly good enough for any single encounter. And then the first time you use this power after a long rest, you don't even expend a side die to use it. So you get a freebie 
And then you have this lewd sum of side eye where you can do it and you're not likely to have to do it more than once anyway. The, the application starts on Windows startup is what you're saying. Yeah, pretty much. It, it's that good. That's just at third level. This is where Josh and I That's were having a discussion free. about is this a little too front loaded? I love this, this subclass. I love the rogue. I question saying anything negative about it. I, I don't want wizards to take it away, but it's a little front loaded. You only have to get to level three to get this. And I would have a hard time finding any class that could not benefit greatly from having just three levels of rogue to get soul knight. There are not many that couldn't benefit from the free communication. There are not many that couldn't benefit from the abilities to succeed on, on skills. Now, there's not a lot mechanically as far as the damage. That comes in much higher levels for, for this particular class. But if you're looking for flavor or a way to make your character cool, this might be that way. And you get a couple of nice rogue features because some of the rogue features are pretty decent up to there. Sneak attack being chief among them. You can't really go wrong with good sneak attack numbers. <laughs> you know, extra damage is extra damage and it's here. Moving on to level nine, psychic blades. Let's, let's face it, folks. This is what we're here for. We're here for the psychic blades. You can manifest your psionic power to shimmering blades of psionic energy. It's a melee weapon or it's a thrown weapon, either or. And if it's a thrown weapon, it's up to 60 feet. I can throw a psychic blade 60 feet. As an attack, it does 1d6 as a, as a main attack, or as a bonus action, it would do 1d4. So let's just talk about the fact that rogues at ninth level. 5d6 sneak, sneak attack. 5d6 sneak attack. Four, four proficiency bonus, so at ninth level, they're going to get uh, eight D8 worth of side dice. Yep. That's a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of damage you That's get to throw down. Hey, you can only use sneak attack once per turn, right? So you have to pick and choose. But you've effectively given yourself a second option. If you failed your first attack, go for the bonus attack. If that succeeds, now apply your sneak attack damage. Mm -hmm. The versatility here is, is incredible. In addition to those two things, there's a couple other odds and ends. You've got what's known as a homing strike. If you make an attack roll with your psychic blades and miss the target, you can roll one psychic energy die and add that number to your attack roll. So the likelihood of missing at ninth level effectively becomes, that's not going to happen. I'm going to hit you. And again, that you can't you you can't beat these types of numbers. The math is really proving this out to be powerful. And then you've got psychic teleportation. I love this one, but I actually missed a piece that Josh picked out when he when he when we were talking about it. And effectively, this is you see a spot and you expend a psychic die, and you can teleport to that spot. You manifest one of your psychic blades, expend one psionic die, one side die, and roll it and you throw that blade to an unoccupied space you can see up to a number of feet away, equal to 10 times the number rolled. Right. And so by this point, you've got D8 as your side dice. You can teleport up to 80 feet away, depending on what you roll on the die. And that's as a bonus action. I mean, it could end up being significantly shorter. Your die roll may not quite make it the full 80, and likely won't all the time, but that's pretty awesome. You only have to roll average or better on a on a D8, and you're doing better than a misty step. Yeah. And and you teleport into that space and the blade vanishes. Ninth level is exceptionally potent. That's the kind of thing that we just you gotta admit that's just badass. Because mm -hmm. um, again, that that gets into the battlefield control type elements. I mean, if I'm playing you know, if I'm fighting with a rapier, I'm going to be up and close and personal with melee damage anyway. By ninth, by ninth level, I have most likely the ability to do my sneak attack on attacks where I don't need advantage, especially given the fact that I can't fail on skill checks for the most part now. Um, I can easily teleport into an area where I'm hidden and basically roll my sneak uh, skill to go ahead and hide and then come out and and then I've got because I was hidden now I have now I have advantage even if I still need that even if I still need advantage to go ahead and do my sneak attack I now have that so I'm fighting you I teleport 40 feet away I'm gone you don't know where I am nobody else knows where I am either because now I've I've hidden and I've got my I've got my my benefit from cybolstered knack to go ahead and sneak 
and, and hide from anybody that's looking for me. And then I pop out of the shadows. I'm doing my sneak attack. So now I've got my D8. I've got my 5D6. Yeah, and then it gets better from there. At 13th level, Soul Knife gets Psychic Veil. Basically, now you're invisible for an hour. No action required. That's just, I want to be invisible now. Uh, once this feature is used, you can't do it again until you finish a long rest. So it's a one shot. Unless, oh, I'm sorry, stand corrected. Yeah. This works like the other things. It's a freebie first time. After that, you have to expend a psychic energy die. So a side die, and you're invisible. Yeah, which at 13th level, by the way, I get 10. Yeah. So I, I get to be invisible for an hour for free, or I could be invisible for 11 hours. And, and like standard invisibility, once you attack, it goes away, but it's easy enough to invoke again because it doesn't take an action. You just do it. <laughs> As an I'm sorry. It takes an action. It takes an but action. That's, that's only really going to apply when you're in combat. So, okay. Right. So, fine. So, I am a rogue. Uh, I am hiding in your bedroom at the tavern. And I'm waiting to go ahead and hear footsteps coming up the stairs. Before you get into the room, I, I shield myself in invisibility. I can be invisible for an hour while you are taking off of your taking off your armor and putting away your weapons and getting into your your bed clothes and going to bed and then immediately when i think you're asleep first thing i'm going to do is i'm going to throw my soul knife and i'm going to go ahead and hit you for d6 while you're asleep uh and then i'm going to sneak attack you with the rapier and at 13th level like i said i'm dropping not just my d8 on the rapier but 76 in, in sneak attack damage which at average damage means what i'm going to do five plus set plus 21. So I'm going to do 30 points of damage to you before you even know that I'm there. And I can do it when you are actively not in your armor, actively away from your weapons, actively away from your friends. And then even if you, and then even if you wake up, even if I don't kill you, even if you wake up, then as an action, I spend a side dice, I go invisible again. No idea where I am. And you just got wrecked. And all that, before we deter, before we roll initiative. Moving on to the caps, capstone, Rend Mine. With this particular uh, feature, uh, your psychic blades can go through a creature's mind. When you're using your psychic blades to deal sneak attack damage, you can force that target to make a wisdom saving throw. DC 8 plus proficiency bonus and your dex modifier. If the, if the target fails, the target is stunned for one minute. Okay, 17th level, my proficiency bonus is six, which means that, and my, so wisdom is not going to be the principal skill of a rogue, most likely, but let's, let's say that they've got a 14 in wisdom, just for grins. And well, so well no, with this, it's your dex modifier, so it's, it's the rogue's oh, dex plus their proficiency modifier, so it's their dex bonus, likely at 17, you're going to have that capstoned out, so you're talking at 20. Yeah. four, so you're talking... Oh, crap. Four nineteen. That's a nineteen DC on a wisdom save. Not one of the most easily saved things in the game. So it's a nineteen on nineteen on the die, which means that most likely you're probably like in the plus two range. So you got to roll a seventeen or better. Yeah, you know what that is? That is the no. I want you to die, Mister Bond. You know that's yeah. the that's the the good guy is now restrained, and the bad guy is going to monologue for a minute. Because he can, because there's nothing that the good guy, there's nothing that the good guy can do about it. Absolutely, That's awesome. Absolutely. Um, now, it with the stunned rules, the stunned creature can uh, repeat that saving throw at the end of each of its turns to to end that effect. So they do get to re-roll that. And I'm assuming if you're playing a 17th level character, there's a fair amount of bonuses on your target's side. But um, so. My guess is they're going to be stunned for one, two, maybe three rounds before they roll high enough to, to get out of it. But just being stunned that first round, because it's till the end of the next turn or whatever, till they can roll again, means there's a, basically a free attack that follows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and it's a freebie. You get one for free every day. And if you want to use it again, then you can go ahead and use your dice, which, by the way, at 17th level, you've got 12 of them. So to the question of whether or not classes are overpowered or not, I have mixed feelings about it. I would respond to that question if asked directly this way. If subclasses are overpowered or if the newer subclasses are overpowered, I think that is in response to previous subclasses being underpowered. If I look at previous books, say Skag, 
there are a plethora of subclasses. There are a sum total of maybe four that I would, as a player, would ever want to play. There are probably maybe five that I, as a DM, would recommend for people asking, like, what do you think? There are probably two that I see often played in games. And those couple were reprinted in Xanathars, right? So now if you look at Xanathars, there are a number that are exceptionally good. But this discussion of, oh, that's OP, only seems to happen with those few that are good. So my counter is, are they truly overpowered or are the other ones just underwhelming? I look at, does this class do something so well that nobody else should bother to play the game? I would conjecture that as good as the soul knife is, or as good as the phantom is, they don't get through a standard adventure on their own. They still need a party. Are they exceptional in their realm, in their niche? Absolutely. Do they handle their niche better than most? Absolutely. I would rather play a phantom who is an assassin than play an assassin who needs to do some assassinating. That's a fact. One of those is fun all the time, whether they're dropping dice or not. The other is pretty much when I get to drop dice, everything about this really, really works. And that's a personal opinion. Uh, I'm not trying to game shame anybody. Uh, Other players love the Assassin subclass. I've never been a big fan of it. I've always thought of it being a really good mechanical option without enough flavor that I like. The few things that are built into it that are flavorful are usually discussed as being the weakest parts of that subclass. And I think that's significant. So I think the discussion about are any subclasses OP or are these in specific subclasses OP really uh we need to examine what we're comparing it to yeah I, I think your point i think your point is really well taken about whether or not this class is overpowered or whether or not the other class the other subclasses in the book may be underpowered while you were talking there i flipped back to a, to a subclass that i was looking at that i was really excited about um in the fighter class and that was the sci fighter and if you look at the soul knife which is the psionic subclass of the rogue class and the sci fighter which is the psionic subclass of the fighter class if you look if you compare them there is there is no comparison the the benefits that the soul knife gets and the abilities that the soul knife gets vastly vastly outpace the abilities that the sci fighter gets. I mean, if you, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and pull one out here. So the 10th level ability for the psionic fighter um, is called Guarded Mind. And the psionic energy flowing through you has bolstered your mind. You have resistance to psionic damage, which, uh, to psychic damage, which is not nothing. Um, but as, as a, as, so it's a 10th level sci fighter. Resistance to psychic damage, fine. Okay, cool. Uh, moreover, if you start your turn charmed or frightened, you can expend a psionic energy die and end every effect on yourself subjecting to, subject to those conditions. So it's the, I can break out of whatever is trapping me so I can continue fighting ability. But I get it at 10th level versus the soul knife, which at third level, I'm getting huge advantage to my skill checks, the power balance is wicked. But you also have to look at, and this is where I think these discussions tend to get missed, folks tend to look at things as the subclass and compare the subclass to the subclass. But you have to take the subclass in conjunction with the class. You're talking about a fighter who has second win. They get all their hit points back or get a large number of their hit points back. They've got all these extra attacks. They get all these extra feats to augment what they do. This this sci fighter and and stupid hit points as the levels go up in comparison to the rest yeah. of the party. Not no. Yeah. Um, the, and as as you say often, that's not nothing. If the subclass matched power for power or level for level with a rogue and you put it on that fighter template, would that be OP? So much of the rogue has a lot of mechanical advantage and they're built on very specific mechanics, that being sneak attack, that, and with this subclass being the side die or what have you, you pair those together and they go together very nicely. But again, you're still talking about a character whose hit points are gonna be at this level. A D8 and a D10 are not that far apart, but the average is still less. Yep. The reality that we all know from gaming, as long as you're rolling die versus choosing that medium level, you're going to vary rapidly. Certainly by the time you get to 
eighth or ninth level see a disparity in hit points between a fighter and a rogue. Yeah, I mean, I'm playing a character right now who's a seventh level rogue. Uh, he's a he's a rogue fighter, uh, a swashbuckler class. So he's a seven one rogue fighter, uh, and he's got fifty three hit points, right? Which is not, you know, like I say, it's not nothing, right? right? But if you compare that with an eighth level fighter, if I'm an eighth level fighter with fifty three hit points, I've been rolling really, really badly. And as a eighth level character who's primarily rogue at fifty three hit points, I've been rolling really, really well. Exactly. And that's kind of the thing that I think uh, the discussion about OP versus not OP or broken or not useful needs to be couched in. And as always, everything needs to be looked at is what's the campaign world you're playing in? Who's your DM? Who's the rest of your party? Do you f- what's your role in a party? Uh, and I'm not talking about your role in a party from a mechanical standpoint. I'm the tank. I'm the healer. I'm the whatever. I'm talking about your role within the party in the campaign as a whole. Are you the face of the party? Are you the one talking to people? Are you the one getting the mission? Are you the one that's getting people out of the bad times when they're in the mission? These are the things that come in. I love the fact in both of my games currently that those roles change. Like I keep throwing them into different scenarios or they keep selecting different scenarios and different players step up week after week. You know, the one who stepped up last week isn't the one who stepped up and made the difference changing action or activity or choice this week. It's changing based on the scenario, and it's why both of those two parties that I've been running now for a while are so amazing to me because they've recognized it. Whether they know it and can talk about it as, hey, this is what we do, who knows? Not everybody's a podcaster. But I can definitely say, that they internal, internally recognize it because they keep doing it with fantastic success. Can't say enough about both of the games I run, the parties that I run, and they've got people all ages, all age groups, gamers uh, new and young with a lot of experience or a little experience in both groups. Um, they've really done a great job of rising to the occasion. And honestly, you could give them the quote-unquote worst subclass and they would still do that. So I think a lot of the question of OP or not really does fall to organized play. It really does fall into this white room kind of game theory discussion less than reality. The reality is people are making this stuff work, and I've seen very powerful classes go underutilized and are not that impactful depending on the nature of the game. Yep, that's, that, that's totally fair. So I think that we have we have pulled a lot of blood out of this stone uh, in the classes section. I know that both of us had, but I know that both of us had some honorable mention type things that we uh, that we didn't expound upon in this episode today. But I think it might be nice to go ahead and just kind of mention them a little bit. Um, and one of them that I wanted to go ahead and mention was uh, for as much fun as I had with the sorcerer class. I think that take when. When you've gone out and got the book, take a good look at some of the otherworldly patron options that come along with the uh, with with the warlock class. Again, I thought that they were uh, mechanically very sound and narratively really really fun. I, I agree. I want to give a quick shout out to the Psy Warrior. I know we talked about it being mm-hmm. a little bit less than than the Soul Knight, but I enjoyed it. I liked what it did. I like Psyonic. I still have deep-rooted hope that they bring back the Psy Wizard from a couple UAs ago. I know we've been told that it will never come out. My hope for hopes is we eventually bring that back, and kudos to the DM who still allows me to play one because they built a a Psy Wizard back at that UA, and he still lets me play it. I'm very interested to see how the the Paladins come out. The Oath of War, the Oath of the Watchers that Josh mentioned earlier are very interesting to me. I think those Paladin subclasses are, are great. And and yeah, you may not have your Psionic Wizard anymore, but you can have a Psionic Sorcerer, which is a, a it's a potential second place. Yeah. Oh, I, and I and I do like the, I do like that sorcerer. I just like Psionics. I would not be opposed to having some form of Psionicist That's in pretty much every class. I think it doesn't work very well as a priestly concept really. At least I don't see that. I don't see that vision. I'm not saying there couldn't be one. I don't see that. Um, see. A psionic cleric. Let's see. Cleric of Denier or Agum. Maybe. Um, who is, so that is sort of your, um, 
your your inquisition right the 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 cleric who can read your mind and or like your your televangelist right the one who knows what's oh or even better you know who it is it's the um uh, it's the psychic that appears on oprah and starts going around the audience and telling people like what's going on with their lives that is the psionic cleric well and i agree with that except for by definition the subclasses for clerics are by domain that's the part that doesn't click for me yeah, fair. i i can see a psionicist being a cleric yeah i can actually see a, a little number of options where the charlatan background and that would work really really well uh, a charlatan psionic sorcerer pretending to be a priest that could be good in fact that may be a character i built i think there's a lot of really great stuff from a character perspective yeah um i'm gonna dig in more to those and audience folks listening if you're within the sound of our combined voices we kind of wanted to do an overview of the, all of them, but we found that we liked a couple of them so much, we just dug in. That doesn't mean at some point in the future, you know, a couple months from now down the road, we might not want to dig into a couple more each. So if there's something you want to see, if you want to get our take on a, a, a our deep dive on a given uh, subclass uh, in this book or any book, let us know. We'd be happy to do more deep dives on subclasses. All right, Lee Wanika, I think we're going to go ahead and put a cap on this episode for today. Uh, We hope that everybody enjoyed it. Uh, Thanks again for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. In the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water. Thank you for listening. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and get all the updates that happen beyond the podcast. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at ttjourneys or send us an email at ttjourneys at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts, we'd love you to leave a review, like, and subscribe. All the feedback we receive goes to making the show better, and we want to hear what you would like us to cover going forward. Thank you again for listening. And in the words of a fellow traveler along our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.